Welcome to episode 121 of Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius, who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. I'm your host Cassius, and together with my panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the ancient Epicurean texts, and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book Epicurus and His Philosophy by Canadian professor Norman DeWitt. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at EpicureanFriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. Today we'll continue our review of Epicurus' letter to Herodotus. We move further into fundamental physics, and we discuss issues relating to the atoms and the soul. Now let's join Martin reading today's text. Furthermore, in the infinite we must not speak of up or down, as though with reference to an absolute highest or lowest. And indeed, we must say that, though it is possible to proceed to infinity in the direction above our heads from wherever we take our stand, the absolute highest point will never appear to us. Nor yet can that which passes beneath the point sought of to infinity be at the same time both up and down in reference to the same thing. For it is impossible to think this. That it is possible to consider as one single motion that which is sought of as the upward motion to infinity and as another the downward motion even though that which passes from us into the regions above our heads arrives countless times at the feet of beings above, and that which passes downwards from us at the head of beings below, for nonetheless the whole motions are sound of as opposed, the one to the other to infinity. Moreover, the atoms must move with equal speed when they are borne onwards through the void, nothing colliding with them, for neither will the heavy move more quickly than the small and light, when, that is, nothing meets them, nor again the small more quickly than the great, having their whole course uniform, when nothing collides with them either, nor is the motion upwards or sideways owing to blows quicker, nor again that downwards owing to their own way. For as long as either of the two motions prevails, so long will it have a course as quick as thought, until something checks it either from outside or from its own weight, counteracting the force of that which dealt the blow. Moreover, their passage through the void, when it takes place without meeting any bodies which might collide, accomplishes every comprehensible distance in inconceivably short time, for it is collision and its absence which takes the outward appearance of slowness and quickness. Moreover, it will be said that in compound bodies, too, one atom is faster than another, though as a matter of fact, all are equal in speed. This will be said because even in the least period of continuous time, all the atoms in aggregate bodies move towards one place even though in moments of time perceptible only by thought, they do not move towards one place, but are constantly jostling one against another, until the continuity of their movement comes under the ken of sensation. For the addition of opinion with regard to the unseen, that the moments perceptible only by thought will also contain continuity of motion, is not true in such cases. For we must remember that is what we observe with the senses or grasp with the mind by an apprehension that is true. Nor must it either be supposed that in moments perceptible only by thought, the moving body too passes to the several places to which its component atoms move, for this too is unthinkable. And in that case, when it arrives altogether in a sensible period of time from any point that may be in the infinite void, it would not be taking its departure from the place from which we apprehend its motion. For the motion of the whole body will be the outward expression of its internal collisions, 
even though up to the limits of perception we suppose the speed of its motion not be retarded by collision. It is of advantage to grasp this first principle as well. Next, referring always to the sensations and the feelings, for in this way you will obtain the most trustworthy ground of belief, you must consider that the soul is a body of fine particles distributed throughout the whole structure, most resembling wind with a certain admixture of heat, and in some respects like to one of these and in some to the other. There is also the part which is many degrees more advanced even than these in fineness of composition, and for this reason is more capable of feeling in harmony with the rest of the structure as well. Now all this is made manifest by the activities of the soul and the feelings and the readiness of its movements and its processes of thought and uh, what we lose at the moment of death. Further, you must grasp that the soul possesses the chief cause of sensation, yet it could not have acquired sensation unless it were in some way enclosed by the rest of the structure. And this in its turn, having afforded the soul this cause of sensation, acquires itself to a share in this contingent capacity from the soul. Yet it does not acquire all the capacities which the soul possesses. And therefore, when the soul is released from the body, the body no longer has sensation. For it never possessed this power in itself, but used the afford opportunity for it to another existence, brought into being at the same time with itself. And this existence, owing to the power now consummated within itself as a result of motion, used spontaneously to produce for itself the capacity of sensation and then to communicate it to the body as well, in virtue of its contact and correspondence of movement, as I have already said. Therefore, so long as the soul remains in the body, even though some other part of the body be lost, it will never lose sensation. Nay more, whatever portions of the soul may perish too, when that which enclosed it is removed either in whole or in part, if the soul continues to exist at all, it will retain sensation. On the other hand, the rest of the structure, though it continues to exist either as a whole or in part, does not retain sensation if it has once lost that sum of atoms, however small it be, which together goes to produce the nature of the soul. Moreover, if the whole structure is dissolved, the soul is dispersed and no longer has the same powers nor performs its movements, so that it does not possess sensation either. For it is impossible to imagine it with sensation, if it is not in this organism and cannot affect these movements, when what encloses and surrounds it is no longer the same as the surroundings in which it now exists and performs these movements. Okay, Martin, thank you for reading that for us today. We have read a little bit longer than we might normally tackle in a single episode, but the material divides pretty clearly down into two sections from lines 60 through the end of 62. We're talking about atomic motion and some of the implications of that. And then from 63 to 66, the end of what we read today, we move over to the discussion of the soul and how the atoms of the soul cannot continue to exist when not restrained within the body or cannot continue to be functioning in the same way to produce sensation. We'll see today how far we get on both of these topics, but we were thinking in tackling the whole section that we may not have an awful lot to bring out about the motion of the atoms in 60 through 62. So first of all, in 60, the primary point appears to be that in an infinite universe, you can proceed indefinitely in any direction without ever coming to an end. I, I think it was interesting to see where he said that you can arrive countless times at the feet of beings above and at the head of beings below. And that this is consistent with the idea of an infinity of, of direction in any direction you choose to move. 
Okay, so last week we were discussing the least part of the atom and the size and shapes of atoms, and now he's talking about a couple of other fundamental attributes or observations that we would make about the atomic structure of the universe. Anybody see any implications we ought to discuss about the issue of up or down in absolute terms? Is that a sort of analogy to the lack of absolutes in our universe? Well, I'll be curious to see what Martin has to say on this, but here's the problem as I see it. He's very clear here in what he says, which is that in the infinite, we must not speak of up or down as though with reference to an absolute highest or lowest. So I think, and this has been one of the great difficulties with Epicurean physics, I think he's saying there is a, a sort of preferred frame of reference in that there is an up and that there is a down and that our heads point up and our feet point down. But it doesn't matter how far you go up in the direction of up, you're never going to reach um, an absolute high point because the universe, in addition to extending sideways infinitely, also extends infinitely up and infinitely down. And I guess the clue to this is that passage you cited where he says, um, it is possible to consider as one single motion, which is thought of as the upward motion to infinity and a downward motion to infinity. That which passes from us into the regions above our heads arrives countless times at the feet of beings above, and that which passes downwards from us to the head of beings below. And this is a huge point of difficulty. And I think we've mentioned it before that the main thing that you don't have in the ancient world when it comes to physics, sort of one of the most important aspects of our current understanding of physics is not just the theory of gravity, but of understanding gravity as a force that attracts bodies. And so without that, you almost have to have a down because otherwise you end up with this problem of why don't we just float off into space? Joshua, before we go to Martin, and I don't want to cut you off if you weren't finished, but you know, my listening to you say that it makes it more clear to me. Maybe he's just simply saying that there is an up and a down relative to us, but that there is not an up and a down in absolute terms. Is that not sort of a constant theme that we've got going through a lot of this physics, that the appearances to us through our senses are what's important to us? And we have to deal with what our senses give to us. And our senses give us an up and a down. It's just that when we put it into the big picture, we have to realize that what our senses are telling us is an up and a down is not absolute up and down for everybody. What do you think about that? I think that is a very tempting solution to this problem, and it would almost certainly prevail if not for that passage in Lucretius where he says something to the effect of it's ludicrous to imagine um, animals on the other side of where we're standing uh, with their heads downward and their feet sticking up. <laughs> and of course, right. Right. Well, like you say, he didn't understand that you wouldn't be walking on your head on the other side of the earth. OK, let me suspend that for just a minute. Let's go to Martin. Yes, this is a consequence of the infinity of the universe, except then now that in, instead of calling that there is no direction, no absolute direction up and down, he refers this to this, there is no absolute highest point. And this is what uh, this is what he uses, and not that there is no specific direction up and down, because from, the sen from his sensation, it's clear there is such a direction, and he, it seems not conceivable for him, for, for him that this, this direction should be different for anyone else because of the aforementioned lack of proper 
physics of uh, gravity, of the understanding of the physics of gravity, so that this portion is even though consistent within Epicurus physics, it is wrong. Okay, what is his point at a very basic level? What do you think he's saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically in, in other words what he said previous before that there, that, that there is no, no no maximum or minimum in uh, uh, also in, uh, no no point where the universe is at the end just continuous. Okay. Okay, now, if we stop at that point, at least I agree with that. Is that not correct? There is no is absolute highest point in any direction. That's correct, right? That's correct. And here's why it matters, Cassius. It matters because almost all religion in all times and places has imagined that if you go up far enough, you get to a certain place that's different from here on Earth. And if you go down far enough, um, you get to what they would have called Hades or the underworld. Um, for the Greeks. And so I think what he's saying here is, no, 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 you can just keep going down and down and down and down and down forever and ever. And you'll never find, uh, I guess, Sisyphus pushing his wheel up a hill or something or his rock, whatever it was. And you can go as high up as you can and you'll never get as high as you think. You'll never get to a place where you think the gods are. You're never going to find that mythical Mount Olympus where the gods live. Although he does have interesting things to say about where the gods live. And it, indeed, it is up from our perception. Uh, OK, I'm thinking we agree with that point, too. Right, Joshua? All three of us agree that that is the correct point. There is no furthest, highest possible up or down in any direction. Yes, yes. It partially matters because Aristotle had conceived of the cosmos with the center of the cosmos being the center of the Earth. And and so the problem is, if you go down to the center of the earth, you can only then go up from there in whatever direction you're going. And then you eventually get to a point where you can't go up anymore because you've reached um, the celestial vault or the the, uh, spheres or whatever. And so what he's laying out here is, is a sort of version of the universe in which there is no ultimate limit in any direction. You can keep going in any direction forever and never reach the end. Martin, you're with that point too, right? Yes. Okay. I hate to make it too complicated, but whenever I hear that there's part of it we agree with and part of it we disagree with, I'm trying to figure out what part we disagree with. So Martin, is there a part that you disagree with? Yeah, there's a defined up and down. So so that one, he he, he says there is an up and a down. Uh, at least implicitly, it's clear from what he writes, and that doesn't exist. Okay, but see, now that's where I would say, and of course, that's what I said a moment ago that Joshua was commenting on. I'm thinking that, that he's raising a distinction between our senses and our existence versus a question of absolutes. Because as you just said, Martin, there is to us an up and a down, right? Uh, yes, think- and, and, yes, and he thinks obviously that anyway, on any place, it's the same thing. Now, that is the question, yeah. Whether up and down is the same direction for everybody? Now, from the context, pretty much clear the, uh, the way he writes it. So th- this is his physics, and uh, it, that's how he sees it. It's interesting to look at that section about how a line that passes from us above our heads arrives at the feet of beings above. Now, I presume that means that if you draw a line from my head to some being on some other planet that arrives at his feet, that if you continued that line, it would head out through his head and it would be up for him too, or no. I mean, yes. I mean, I'm, 
You're absolutely right there. That's what he's saying is you don't, you're not going to go up from your head and hit the bottom of someone else's head from their frame of reference. And so that mm-hmm. their up is your down and that kind of thing. All right. Well, before we move to 61, do we have a clear takeaway from 60? I am real close to having a <laughs> Lucretius here. Which... Real close to what, Joshua? I'm I'm very close to having a quote from Lucretius here. Which I'm okay, gonna... you're looking feverishly while I babble. Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. That I should babble on for just a minute more? <laughs> I, I'm going to continue babbling in the direction that I think one of the themes of, of our Epicurean physics is that existence to us is what we perceive through our senses. And that we have to keep in mind that sometimes what we perceive through our senses has to be corrected through multiple observations. And so I don't know where I'm exactly going with that, but I think it probably makes sense that what's up and down to life, a great example, what's up to me in the Southeast United States, Martin's actually walking on his head on the other side of the world right now, I guess is is the situation since he's almost directly on the other side of the world from us. A line through my feet is going to first hit Martin's feet and then come out of his head on its ultimate trip through infinity. So that while something is up for me, it's actually down for Martin. Joshua, you found that line yet? Yes, it's it's Lucretius book one lines roughly 1058 through 1067. And in these problems shrink my memius far from yielding faith to that notorious talk. And this is the notorious talk that he wants memius to avoid that all things inward to the center press. So that's Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the world stands firm. That's also Aristotle. The earth doesn't move. Um, in Aristotle's physics, it's the unmoving center with never blows from outward, nor can be nowhere disparted. In other words, the world will never um, be destroyed since all height and depth have always inward to the center pressed. If thou art ready to believe that ought itself can rest upon itself or that ponderous bodies which be under earth do all press upwards and do come to rest upon the earth in some way upside down, like to those images of things we see at present through the waters. They contend with like procedure, they being the peripatetics, um, that all breathing things head downward, roam about, and yet cannot tumble from earth to realms of sky below, no more than these our bodies wing away spontaneously to vaults of sky above, that when those creatures look upon the sun, we view the constellations of the night, and that with us the seasons of the sky, they thus alternately divide, and thus do pass the night co-equal to our days. And then he goes on to say, but a vain error has given these dreams to fools, which they've embraced with reasoning perverse or center. None can be where world is still boundless, nor yet if now a center were, could aught take their affixed position more. And he goes on. But so basically, he's he's saying that if you believe Aristotle, you have to believe this, this and this, which he seems to think are just patently ridiculous and and no reasonable person would believe them. Unfortunately, a reasonable person today should believe them because we have evidence that these things are true. Well, as you're very good at pointing out, Joshua, the reasonable person today believes that gravity pulls towards the center of a particular planet. But 
there's no reason to believe that our particular planet is the center of the universe. So it depends on where you're located within the universe, what direction you're going to be pulled, right? Right, right. Because Aristotle would have thought it even more ludicrous to think that someone could stand on the moon. You know, it totally doesn't work with his system. With one of the religious or theological implications being that if the Earth is the center of the universe and everything is being pulled towards the center of the Earth, at least in little minds like mine, that would be sort of implying that maybe God put the Earth in the center of, of everything and that we're special by being here in the center of everything. So, right. And which that, is why it's, it's a problem for Christianity if, if they do find intelligent life on other worlds, um, because there's only one Savior. There's only one Son of God and mm-hmm. no record of him having gone to other worlds. So. Well, that's one of those, I guess, issues where people were struggling towards the right answer with less information than they would like to have had. And now that we have more information, it's a whole lot easier for us to deal with than it was back 2000 years ago when everybody was still standing on the earth. If anybody has something else on that, say so. But otherwise, let's move to 61 and start talking about the speed of the atoms which is basically a point that every atom is moving with equal speed. And the collisions of the atoms obviously will change their direction. But I think the inference here is that basically all atoms are moving at the same speed. And it's it's collision and absence, which makes it appear that they're moving slowly or quickly to us. Joshua, do you want to go first or Martin on that one? Well, I'd be curious to see how Martin reads this as well, because when I read 61, what I seem to be reading is, is a very early formulation of the law of inertia, which is that things keep moving at the same speed in the same direction until they're acted upon by an outside force in which they move in another direction. But the weight of the thing itself is not enough to move it in a different direction. And it moves at the same speed from the object that struck it, regardless of whether it's um, light or heavy. And Martin, before you tackle it, 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 I maybe have made a mistake by separating 61 and 62, because it looks like 62 is largely the same issue. If, if it's separate, you you say so. But I think 61 and 62 are talking about the movement of atoms, either within bodies or just on their own, and how fast they're moving. Mm, but there is one thing here which which doesn't really fit. There is this phrase, until something checks it either from outside or from its own weight, counteracting the force of that which dealt the blow. So, okay, I think I see what you're saying here. It makes sense on Earth. You know, you couldn't throw a banana at an anvil and, and hope to send it flinging off into space. But certainly if you were in space and you had an anvil and a banana and you threw the banana at the anvil, it would move the anvil a little bit. <laughs> Well, before we get too far into the details of what we think is absolutely right or wrong, can anybody sort of put this in context as to why he is concerned about it? Is there some contention that we think is implied by somebody being concerned that one atom could move faster than another atom? Is that some kind of a idea that he's concerned about, that the atoms differ in some mystical way that he wants to combat? Why would he be concerned about whether there's a difference in motion between the atoms? Because everything has to come back to some practical reason for discussing it. This is a summary letter giving people the important parts of physics. Why would this be important? 
Well, the collision and dispersal of the atoms is important because that's how things come together in the first place. You don't get aggregate bodies from minute atoms unless they're, I think the image that he uses elsewhere is, is a rain of atoms, meaning that if all atoms are traveling on the same trajectory in parallel lines, they're never going to intersect. They're never going to hit each other. And if they never hit each other, you'll never end up with larger bodies or, or groups of atoms because they have to, you got to get them coming together in one way or another. And so to keep them constantly coming together, what you need is you need a motion that is infinite. In other words, they don't just go a little ways and then stop. They have to keep moving. And then, um, of course, when they hit something else, they have to change direction. They have to either latch onto that one thing or change direction. Um, that way they can go hit something else. <laughs> and then with, with the further point being that whatever trajectory they move on, they're not all falling toward the center, which again is, is Aristotle's conception of the center of the earth is the center of the universe. Uh, because if everything's just endlessly falling toward the center, you don't get an infinite universe where things continue to happen. You just get a larger and larger mass at the very core. Black hole. There you go. <laughs> what was that, Martin? Yeah. Black hole. I mean, it's, it was a Black bit hole. of a joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was... we, didn't have that, we couldn't have that concept at that time, but it's, in some way it would be a simplistic idea of how a black hole happened. Right. Yeah. Although Aristotle had some interesting ideas, he didn't think that it was the nature of every kind of matter to move toward the center. He thought that it was the nature of certain kinds of matter, um, like air and fire and ether, um, to be repulsed from the center and to go as far away from it as they could, <laughs> which is quite difficult as well. But that's why when you light a fire, in his view, the fire always goes upward. Is because it's trying it's trying to get away from the center. I wonder if he's concerned about what could cause an atom to move faster than another atom. Maybe he wants to eliminate the possibility that God has his chosen atoms, like his chosen people. He could have his chosen atoms that should move faster than others at all times. I guess by saying that they're all moving with equal speed, you are making an observation that there's no force or outside factor that instigates one to move faster than another. I guess that's one way of approaching the question is, why would any atom move faster than another atom? I could see why one person might imagine that atoms not moving the same speed as one another would make it harder for them to aggregate, to come together, mm -hmm. twice as fast as the atoms around them, and they're bouncing off. They've got no hope of, you know, latching onto anything, and the smaller atoms have no hope of latching onto them. But I'm just making stuff up. I don't know. I don't know what his main focus was here with with the atoms all being at the same speed. Well, let's look at 62 because maybe there's a little more analysis in 62 than there is in 61 because he's talking about moments of time perceptible only by thought, that they don't move towards one place but are constantly jostling one against another until the continuity of their movement comes under the kin of sensation. And then he starts talking about for the addition of opinion with regard to the unseen, that the moments perceptible only by thought will also contain continuity of motion is not true in such cases. Maybe here's the most important line that I can pull out of all of this so far. 
For we must remember that it is what we observe with the senses or grasp with the mind by an apprehension that is true. I'm trying to catch up here. (laughs) That's in the middle of 62. He clearly is thinking that there are suggestions about the movement of atoms that are wrong and that he is trying to correct. And he concludes this by saying it is an advantage to grasp this first principle as well. I mean, I can I can instantly think of problems for his physics if certain atoms are moving faster than others, right? You don't get films of atoms streaming off of the object and striking the eye. If half of the atoms are faster than the other half, it's going to be a very jumbled image that ultimately impinges. I think that's a, that's a very good observation, Joshua. There's certainly some distortion that happens as the atoms jumble against each other, but for the most part, you wouldn't have any recognizable image at all if they weren't generally traveling at a consistent speed. And I do like this bit about constantly jostling one against another. So even apparently solid bodies like a rock, there's still this constant motion of atoms going on in something that appears to us to be the most stable of things. You've still got motion involved there. And that could be what he's doing here, too. You know, in Lucretius, there's additional detail about how you can imagine the atom movement by thinking about dust that we can see visibly in rays of light sometimes that stream through a window. It could be that basically he's just doing what you said, Joshua, that explaining that even in something that looks absolutely motionless and inert like a rock, it's still basically a bundle of atoms moving around within that rock at an amazing speed, which would help explain how a rock over time will deteriorate or how how a statue, when you touch its finger, will wear away over the ages, that these things are in motion, even though they appear to be absolutely motionless. Right. I wonder that that bit from Lucretius, I don't think we have anything from Epicurus surviving um, that that says that directly. That must have been in his lost books on nature. The one about the dust and the movement in the... Uh, because it's thought to be a very, very early description of something like Brownian motion. I don't know that we have it anywhere else. And maybe maybe there's a reference in Diogenes of Oinoander, but I think this letter Epicurus is the most detailed from, from Epicurus himself. Well, we sort of have gotten through the motion of the atoms and made a couple of basic observations about it. And and we probably do have time to turn our attention to 63 to 66, which is going to be the issue of the atoms of the soul and their motions. So if we go into 63, let me highlight the very first lines. Next, referring always to the sensations and the feelings, for in this way you'll obtain the most trustworthy ground of belief. You must consider that the soul is a body of fine particles distributed to the structure. I think it's important that he gives that preliminary observation that, yes, we're going to talk about the soul being composed of fine particles moving in the same way we've been discussing atoms, but that we have to refer to the sensations and the feelings of what we actually feel and sense in our experience to get the most trustworthy grounds of what to conclude. Right. So the soul atoms, and this is always difficult. He says that there is also the part which is many degrees more advanced even than these in fineness of composition and for this reason is more capable of feeling in harmony with the rest of the structure as well. Now, all this is made manifest by the activities of the soul, 
and the feelings and the readiness of its movement and its processes of thought and by what we lose at the moment of death. What did Lucretius say about that? He said that even when, even when a horse moves or something, it moves when it's struck by the jockey or something. So it's, it's almost in the sense that the soul atoms are, are sort of lurching the body into its initial movement. And this is one way to get around this problem of uh, determinism. Right. And that's in the discussion in Lucretius. I think it's in book two about the atoms of the soul being extremely fine and extremely, I guess, light or whatever, that they're able to move, I guess, with less collisions and so forth would be the implications of that uh, through the body and, and sort of communicate from one part of the body to the other what's going on. That section in book two of Lucretius has some interesting material in it that's not included here about how the atoms of the soul are maybe of a particular type in terms of lightness and fineness and so forth. I think there's a comparison with like atoms of molasses or something, that there are certain things where the atoms move more slowly and in combination. But it's interesting to talk about the tension there. If the atoms are all moving at the same speed, it's tempting to say that some atoms have a just an inherent quality of being faster or slower. But I guess that's what he's not saying. He's saying that that's not the case, that they're not inherently faster or slower on their own, but potentially because of their shape and their weight and, and their size, maybe they are hooked or whatever. And when they come together, the resulting structure can be either fast or slow. I mean, certainly we have fast or slow as experiences in our world. We sense that tortoises are slow and hares and Achilles are fast. So fast and slow means an awful lot to us at our level of experience, but not at the atomic structure level. Is that correct? I think so. The other reason that the soul atoms need to be very fine so that they can move through the body quicker is something that I remember one of my philosophy professors talking about, which was, if you cut off your arm, do you lose a portion of your soul? <laughs> oh, yeah. And so if the soul atoms have to be so fine that they can instantly retreat <laughs> back into the body when something like that happens. So that may be a more difficult question than we're able to answer here. Do you lose a part of your soul when you cut off your arm? Would Epicurus say that you do that? No, I think he said that because uh, according to Lucretius, that is what we can find in Ignatius, that, that you actually lose a bit of part of the soul. In that sense, meaning that the soul is described as something that is material and has a place to it and is not a supernatural, immortal spirit. Yeah, and presumably the soul, like the body, has some limited power to regenerate itself by taking in atoms from the outside and assimilating it into the body of the body or the soul. We can also think that they're sort of analogy. If you cut off an arm, the body is still alive unless you bleed to death if you don't get the wound treated. But if assuming that we, we treat the wound, uh, losing the arm is, is not something what needs to be fatal. And the same thing we can consider then for the soul, that the part in the arm is, is uh, does not affect the integrity of the soul. And that's really what he's saying in this first sentence of 63. He says, you must consider that the soul is a body of fine particles distributed throughout the whole structure. So if it's distributed out the whole structure and you cut off the arm, you're going to lose some part of your soul assembly. The Young translation here in which he says, says, next, keeping in view our perception and feelings, bestow 
shall we have the surest grounds for belief, we must recognize generally that the soul is a corporeal thing composed of fine particles dispersed all over the frame, most nearly resembling wind with an admixture of heat in some respects like wind, in other respects like heat. Does that show up in? That is 63 in Bailey. I noticed in putting this together this morning, and you've brought it up, Joshua, that there's a little bit of a difference in the numbering in Bailey and versus Young and Hicks, and I did not get to the bottom. But uh, if you look at 63 under the Bailey material we have here, it does basically say that. Okay. It's resembling wind with a certain mixture of heat in some respects, like to one of these and in some to the other. I think I've read that that issue of wind is an artifact of some Greek belief that wind was earth, wind, and fire, one of the elements or something. Yeah, but but even more particularly, wind or the pneuma, as in like pneumatics, E-N-E-U-M-A, would be in the Latin vocabulary. It's the idea that the soul is is air that's sort of breathed out and then gulped back in every second. You're constantly <laughs> exhaling and inhaling your soul and then when you die it just goes out for the last time i think marcus aurelius has a interesting passage about how the soul is nothing but air and therefore you know he derives certain stoic conclusions from that maybe i can find that that might be good to bring in well if you want to look for it let me go ahead and make the observation that as we look at the rest of the material that martin has read for the day basically it looks to me like 64 and 65 are basically going to make what is probably the key point of all in regard to the soul that the soul possesses the chief cause of sensation but it would not have acquired sensation unless it were enclosed by the rest of the structure and so he says it probably in a couple of different ways here in the 65. So long as the soul remains in the body, even though some other part of the body be lost, it will never lose sensation. On the other hand, that the rest of the structure, though it continues to exist, does not retain sensation if it is once lost that sum of atoms, however small it be which together go to produce the nature of the soul. And when the structure is dissolved, the soul is dispersed and no longer has the same powers nor performs its movements, so it does not possess sensation. That's one thing about Epicurus. He'll often say the same thing in several different ways, I guess largely to hammer home the point. And it looks to me like 64 and 65 and then 66, for it's impossible to imagine the soul with sensation if it is not in this organism and cannot affect the movements. And then when what encloses and surrounds it is no longer the same. So basically 64, 65, 66 are going to be emphasizing this point that the soul is the chief cause of sensation, but it cannot exist outside the body. Did that give you time to find the passage, Joshua? I did find it, yes. It's labeled here as 2.2 of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Okay. It says, whatever this is that I am, it is flesh and a little spirit and an intelligence. Throw away your books. Stop letting yourself be distracted. That is not allowed. Instead, as if you were dying right now, despise your flesh. A mess of blood, pieces of bone, a woven tangle of nerves, veins, and arteries. Consider what the spirit air, and never the same air, but vomited out and gulped in again every instant. Find mm. the intelligence. Think of it this way. You were an old man. Stop allowing your mind to be a slave, to be jerked about by every selfish impulse, to kick against fate in the present, and to mistrust the future. So basically he's saying, this is Marcus Aurelius, of course, articulating a stoic position, which is despise the flesh, 
even the soul is just air vomited out and gulped in again. So no grounds for what you might call narcissism or ego self-interest there. The only thing you have to do is fortress your intelligence in such a way that it can't be made fragile. I'm, I'm assuming you'll have something to say about that, Cassius, because <laughs> Epicurus is going to say, despise your flesh. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to reconcile that with what Epicurus's position is on many of those issues there. Marcus Aurelius is sort of a troublesome character. Martin, anything on that? I still try to find this quote in, in, in the text because I didn't recall this from reading it, but that was a long time ago, or maybe it's not as clear. You're talking about Marcus Aurelius, right? Yes. You're looking for the quote I just read? Uh, unfortunately, my translation, yeah, the, the translation I had have, doesn't have numbers, so I have no idea where 2.2 is supposed to be. Joshua, repeat one more time where he ends up. Where, where does Marcus Aurelius end up with that? Well, he says, consider what the spirit is. It's air, never the same air. You vomit it out and gulp it in every instant. And then finally, the intelligence. So you're made of three things, flesh, spirit, which is just air and intelligence and he says think of it this way you are an old man stop allowing your mind to be a slave to be jerked about by every selfish impulse to kick against fate and the present and to mistrust the future gosh as usual he's sort of a mixture of things there stop allowing your mind to be i'd have to see that last passage as well probably like martin's looking for it is he telling you to take charge over fate because that's not stoic. No, I, I think. Or is he telling you to go along with it? He's saying to stop kicking against fate <laughs> and oh stop the future. Not because you think the future is going to be good, but because you've got your kernel of intelligence, which you're protecting with everything that you have. And as long as you've got that, you are immune to any external influence. As long as you have your intelligence, you're able to conform yourself to your fate. As long as you have your intelligence, you're able to cope with the bad things in life and give in to them and consider yourself one with the universe. Is that where he's going? Yes, I, as long I mean, not a slave, which I'm assuming here means a slave to the impulses or a slave. Because he wants you to be a slave to the universe and to fate and to the God is what I'm hearing in that. Is To the logo. Because uh, he then goes on to say, what is divine is full of providence. Even chance is not divorced from nature. We could do a whole thing on just Marcus Aurelius, but... Again, I don't have that in front of me, and I may be going overboard as I would tend to do when I hear something stoic like that. But the immediate sense I get out of that is is that you should be using your intelligence and your mind to bring yourself into conformity with providence, with what he set out as the fate that has been in store for you through the universe. And causes pain to your body. That's yeah, yeah. which is all well and good if, in fact, there is that prime mover or that providence that he's talking about. If there's not, then, then what are you doing, man? Uh, if, in fact, what nature has given you is pleasure and pain to be your guides and to allow you to live according to nature, then you don't use your mind to basically suppress your feelings of pain and pleasure. You Use your, your mind to, to maximize your life, to live it as in the best way possible, which is, again, it gets back to these physics issues. Is the best way possible to spend your life living in conformity with the dictates of logic and reason and the divine will? Or is the best way to spend your life to live it in conformity with what 
nature gives you through your senses. Yeah, what's that? Uh, Epicurus has a quote, something to the effect of, it is vain to ask the gods for that which we can supply ourselves, procure for ourselves. A blissful and eternal being is not troubled in itself and brings no trouble to... So anyway, the, the upshot for that from an Epicurean point of view seems to be you don't have to live with fate necessarily. You can you can take intelligent steps to secure things like bodily pleasure. You don't have to just endlessly endure pain and hardship in pursuit of uh, the nebulous goal of virtue, of living in accord with the logos. Right. Yes. I was getting confused on one of the quotes you raised. I was thinking it might it sounded more like Thomas Jefferson to me than it did to Epicurus, but it's Vatican saying 65. It is vain to ask of the gods what a man is capable of supplying for himself. Horace quotes that almost directly in response to another poet. I, I think there was a poet whose name I can't remember who said something to the effect of gods give me health and whatever. And Horace said, no, no, I can I can supply that for myself. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I remember that. As for peace of mind or something, I'll supply that for myself or something is, is what he says. Yeah. Well, rather than focus my uh, irritation on Marcus Aurelius, I guess 63, 64, 65 are sort of the physics position of Epicurus that would ultimately make it difficult or impossible to go along with Marcus Aurelius's view of a divinely ordered universe that you should be concerned about your, your eternal soul. I, of course, I don't know whether did, did Marcus Aurelius think he had an eternal soul. Is that implicit in in his views? Something about how the spirit's made of air and how is does the air hold all the dead spirits from the past? Remember it in full. It's been a long time since I've read Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, that's, that's one of those, to me, confusing things about Stoicism. And, and again, Marcus Aurelius seems to combine different elements of different philosophers. And you can praise Marcus Aurelius all you want. But in the end, he mixes things together in from what I would argue would be totally incompatible sources, because the Epicurean material is very clear that the soul cannot exist outside the body. And unless somebody's going to argue that the body's going to be reconstituted somewhere in the future in some other world, then you're not going to have the body reassembling itself and having the same soul. So that you're just not going to be concerned about reward or punishment in a future life. You never get to those questions because you have these sort of physics positions that make them impossible. Yeah, in defense of uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, so that uh, he, he presents different positions and uh, he comes to, to the same conclusion from them. So so that means he doesn't uh, he, he does not concoct different physics together. He just presents whatever physics you, you take, you still come to the same conclusion. A lot of us come to studying Epicurean philosophy through Stoicism and a lot of us come to studying Stoicism through hearing about Marcus Aurelius. It's a winding road. I do see here in 65, it sort of answers our question about what happens when you cut off your arm. Therefore, so long as the soul remains in the body, even though some part of it be lost, it will never lose sensation. Nay, more, whatever portions of the soul may perish too, when that which enclosed it will move, either in whole or in part, if the soul continues to exist at all, it will retain sensation. On the other hand, the rest of the structure, though it continues to exist either as a whole or in part, does not retain sensation if it has once lost that sum of atoms, however small it be, which together goes to produce the nature of the soul. 
In effect, what he's saying here is the soul doesn't die until the body dies, something like that. And he says that when the body dies, the soul necessarily dies. The soul dies, the body necessarily. Yeah, so in other words, there is no spirit left after the death of the body and there are no, no, no Epicurean zombies. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I have sort of a general comment that I can make here as we sort of begin to come to the close of today's material. When I woke up this morning, I started reading an article I'd not seen before by a man named McGillivray, McGillivray, entitled Epicurean Mission and Membership from the Early Garden to the Late Roman Republic. And the part of it that I am thinking about right now is one of the things that emphasizes is the use of these texts, these epitomes, the letters of Epicurus being one of the summaries, as means of talking to newer people and as a means of remembering. Actually, what he emphasizes is that they were arguably used for memorization, that you would memorize things like the letter to Herodotus or the letter to Pythocles, along with maybe the 40 principal doctrines. And so the connection in that comment to what we're doing right now is I often think of trying to lay these things side by side. It's pretty easy to think about that what we're talking about now about the speed of the atoms and the soul not existing outside of the body. We, we can find that in more detail in Lucretius book one or book two. But in terms of going the other direction, in terms of a higher level summary, I'm just thinking in terms of where we are in the letter to Herodotus versus where we might be if we were starting with the 40 principal doctrines or the 12 fundamentals of physics. I guess it's always been unclear to me whether the first document you would be supposed to know would be this 12 fundamentals of physics or not. But all of that is by way of saying that where we are now in talking about the soul not being able to survive from the body, presumably, is principle doctrine number two, which ultimately comes down to us as death is nothing to us, for that which is dissolved is without sensation, and that which lacks sensation is nothing to us. So that that's probably the ultimate takeaway of where we've been reading today is that the soul is the means of sensation. The soul is composed of very fine atoms that traverse inside the body, but that the soul cannot continue to exist outside the body. So that when the body is dissolved and the soul escapes, there's no longer any sensation. And that which lacks sensation is nothing to us. And that's probably the ultimate point of principle doctrine number two, which means that since sensation and the things we experience or the way we experience life, once we stop experiencing things, once we stop having sensation, then what comes after that is of no relevance to us. So I guess I'm saying that to sort of orient us in terms of where we are within the letter to Herodotus. He's still pretty early in the process of laying out the foundations of his main ethical standards. But he's not yet that I've seen hit the issue of pleasure and pain yet here in the letter to Herodotus. I am when he's go ahead. referring to the sensations and the feelings. For in this way, you will obtain the most trustworthy ground of belief. Yeah, I interpret the word feelings. I mean, since he uses two words there, presumably he's talking about two different things. And the sensations, presumably the five senses and the feelings is, is that issue of, of pleasure and pain. Pathé or whatever in Greek. Right. 
So he'll mention that several times as sort of a given, but at least in this letter to Herodotus so far, I don't think he has devoted a lengthy series of sentences to that point, almost as if he's presuming it. I think that he did say at the beginning where he said um, his own pleasure was chiefly constituted in his um, study of nature. I don't know. It's difficult to continue to think of things to uh, pull out of this. <laughs> right very basic issues. I have to feel that most of what's going on here would have made a lot of sense. It, it would have been immediately clear to his readers what he was arguing against, who he was talking about with little sort of asides. And when he says, you know, you mustn't believe this, people would have immediately in their minds gone, oh, okay, I know who believes this. So therefore the conclusion is this other thing. And I, I feel like without a thorough study of Plato and Aristotle and and the pre-Socratics, um, I think we lose some of the flavor of that. But yeah, that, I agree. As to the essay that you you mentioned, I, I still haven't had a chance to read it, but you make it sound like it's very good. <laughs> I was very impressed with it from the perspective that it talks a lot about the question of were the Epicureans hermits living on their own. Or were they basically missionary proselytizers who were sort of foreshadowers of the Great Commission of the Christians or something like that? And it references DeWitt several times, and it comes down in, in sort of a middle position, but much more closely to the position that you are not supposed to be a hermit, that there's many, many, many examples throughout Epicurean history of how the whole Epicurean philosophy was an outward-reaching movement of people. And it gives a lot of good material, a lot of good research, and lots of references that I'd really never seen, but um, very well written. And it kind of, again, I guess the reason it comes to my mind today is it pointed out, like, again, here in this letter to Herodotus and in the letter to Pythocles, he, he didn't go into the letter to Menorchius, Menorchius very much, but he emphasized how, and we, we covered it when we started with this, that the letter to Herodotus spends a lot of time at the beginning, which we've already gone over, and then at the end, which we haven't reached yet, but he emphasizes in both places that this is a bridgment of my general principles so that my account would be easy to grasp with accuracy. And even if you're not able to proceed on all the detailed particulars of the system, you can obtain from this an unrivaled strength compared to other men. And there's sort of a, he opens the letter, he closes the letter, and he pretty much does exactly the same thing in this letter to Pythocles, that these weren't just random letters that were saved by Diogenes Laertius, that these were really written with the intention that people who were following Epicurean philosophy would really, if not memorize them, become very, very familiar with this particular set of points from which there'd be a lot of, of usefulness, not just in debating other philosophers, but in actually living life. And of course, I've you know read this kind of point many times, but it struck me today, I haven't, I haven't tried to memorize any of these texts. And in the absence of being able to read the original language, I don't know what version you'd even try to commit to memory. But it is interesting that, and that's one of his points, is that the, the, the techniques that we talk about a lot of living more happily or living according to the ways of any particular philosophic school, the techniques tended to be, you know, something like memorization or whatever as a technique is neutral, largely in terms of what philosophy you're applying it with. Just the very organization of these books, the organization of these letters makes it clear that 
Epicurus is organizing his time to present it to people who are not currently living in his house with him. He's extending the philosophy to other people by presenting it in simpler terms that, that can be remembered. And it seemed from a passage in Philodemus that this worked almost too well from his point of view. Yeah, this article talks about that as well. Philodemus seems to have been hitting back against the issue that was involved in that period that Philodemus was complaining that some people were just simply referring to these summaries and not looking at the original text. And so there's this debate going on within the Epicurean school even as to how much time you should spend looking at the original text versus doing other things, presumably looking at the summaries. And there seems to have been a division of opinion about the desirability of that. And that's what this article that we're talking about right now, the McGillivray article, is, is pretty good about making you think about the different purposes of a letter like this. Is this letter to Herodotus a simplification of Epicurean philosophy intended for people who are just learning it? Or is it not a simplification, but simply an abridgment intended to be short enough to be memorized? In other words, there's this tension that you just mentioned, Joshua, about if you simplify something, then you take the edge off of it and you lose the purity of the original message. Is there any sense in which the letter to Herodotus is taking the edge off of Epicurus's full work, or is it simply an abridgment of extremely important material that is just shortened to be manageable to commit to memory? I don't gather that it's a dumbing down. No, I agree with you. And of course, the challenge for us living today is that we don't have his 37 books on nature or whatever it was. I keep saying 37. People are going to get the idea. <laughs> I don't remember how many there were. But the key point is we don't have his sort of book length dissertation on nature and how it works. All we have is these letters and the principal doctrines, the Vatican sayings, and then, of course, the, the great source, which is Lucretius. Yeah. And to carry further what you just said, because we don't have those original sources, it's easy for us to make mistakes. And I think we have to be more concerned than ever about whether our own summaries or our own outlines constitute a dumbing down. That's my constant theme when I worry about the Tetrapharmicon and the four-part cure. I constantly worry that that is a dumbing down. Don't fear the gods. Don't fear death. Those two, as a summary, leave out so much material that's important that you can get a false misunderstanding of where he's going with something that's so abbreviated. But I would say the letter to Herodotus, letter to Pythocles, his letters here, he may be leaving out some important subtleties, but I don't know that he's leaving out anything that's, it's not a dumbing down. Right. He's not going to give 10 examples for each phenomenon like he does in, like Lucretius, right. you know, for lightning or storms or stuff like that. Which would be desirable to do if you have time, but it's, you just don't always have time. That's another part that's discussed in this article here. It seems like you can sort of infer from the material that there was this category of people they were talking to who were not expected necessarily ever to have the time to read all the 37 books. In other words, so many people in life are distracted by business or other things that they'll just never have the time to read philosophy. What do you do with those people? Do you ignore them? 
Do you give them a little bit with the expectation that they're going to eventually read the other 37 books? Or do you give them sort of a summary with the knowledge that they're never going to read the other 37 books? And, and you sort of change your approach depending on how much time they're going to have to devote to it. That's an interesting question. And that sort of touches on an idea I have, which is how much, to what extent is Epicurus pushing back against this cultural idea that philosophy is something that you do when you settled all your worldly affairs, more or less. Right. Name the business, you've done the political thing, you've raised a family. Okay, now that I've got all the important stuff out of the way, now I'm going to focus on philosophy. I think um, Cato the Elder famously, he was a Roman writer, rather staunchly conservative Roman at that, but famously learned Greek at the age of 80 so that he could now get to the work of um, figuring out philosophy and that kind of thing says repeatedly, says it all over the place. You got to start studying philosophy as soon as possible um, when you're young, preferably. That's what Epicurus suggests. Absolutely. I think in this article we continue to talk about, I believe it mentions Cato the Elder and how Cato the Elder was a opponent of Greek philosophy. I guess these earlier Romans were just very dismissive of some of the aspects of Greek philosophy and thought it was very harmful. But even though Cato the Elder might not have embraced it in his time, the younger Cato, whatever, was ultimately closely identified with Stoicism. Right. Yeah. There seems to have been a general theory that too much Greek culture was bad for the public, is that when Julius Caesar sort of waged his campaign against Gaul, you had Gallic chieftains who were refusing to import Roman wine because they thought Roman culture was bad for Gaul. Well, okay. We are near the end of a normal length episode here. So we're going to have a little bit more to say next week about the soul and sensation. And then we're going to move further along, back along this same journey of comparing the physics that we know versus what our senses tell us and how to make sense of everything. I guess basically that's what we're doing is generally talking about what we think ultimately the universe is about and how our senses and our minds can make sense of it for us. How the flux is there, but it doesn't move so fast that we can't make sense of it, as uh, Diogenes of Wonder said. So with that, Martin, do you have final thoughts for today? No, I have nothing to add. Okay. Joshua? I would say that my main takeaway is I need to read that essay you've been talking about. <laughs> it certainly sounds very interesting. Do you remember who the author was so we could that here quickly? Yes, it's posted on the forum. It appears to be a thesis at a college that I'm forgetting the name of already, but the man's name is, is someone I've not heard before, MacGillivray, an unusual name for me too. Let's see, let me get it exactly right. It's, <laughs> I can't even pronounce his name. Erland, E-R-L-E-N-D, Erland D. McGillivray from the University of Aberdeen. Is that in England or Australia? Do you recognize University of Aberdeen? Scotland. Scotland. Okay, okay. It's got chapters on Epicurean doctrine and the missionary impulse, Epicurean philosophy and therapeutic strategies, Epicurean popularizers, which goes into more detail than I've seen about that period of the early Epicurean writers that Cicero comments on but doesn't say much about. And then he finishes off with elite Roman Epicureans and then Lucretius. But it's a long essay with a lot of good research. And right now I'm very enthusiastic about it. So I think it would be a benefit to 
many of us, because basically what he's discussing there is what we're doing at the EpicureanFriends.com forum. We're trying to sort of reconstruct it, understand the basics, and think about how to actually apply those basics in a popular way. And the tension there is, of course, goes into a lot in this essay, is that Epicure said you can't be concerned about what the crowd thinks and what everybody thinks because you're really never going to be able to convert or change the opinion of the great majority of people. But even within that knowledge, there are going to be people who are, the phrase that's used here in Endogenes of Oinuander, those who are well disposed towards us, that not everybody's capable or so situated that they can have the time to study philosophy and become familiar with Epicurean philosophy, but that there are going to be those who we come into contact with who are well disposed towards us. And with those people, the question becomes, how do you integrate them into your time? Do you try to set up a commune and everybody live together, which which this article also takes the position is not what was done in the ancient world, but certainly beneficial for you to have as many friends as you can have as close friends and not only quantity, but quality to a degree. So there are practical reasons for doing that. He talks about Bernard Frischer's book on the, the statues and said that Bernard Frischer had argued that the Epicureans were reclusive and they stayed behind their walls. But what they did as a method of getting the word out was to put statues out in the middle of the forum, basically. Uh, this author says that that would not be a good interpretation, that there's just a lot of good reason that the Epicureans were engaged with uh, other people and were happy to talk about their ideas with those who are, again, well disposed towards them. So that's what we're doing. We'll continue to do on the podcast and on the forum. And with that, I guess we'll come back next week. So thanks very much. Thanks. Goodbye. OK, bye.